heard one of these words before, or these phrases. There's an elephant in the room, and no one is talking about it. There's an elephant in the room, and no one is talking about it. Uh, We'll just have to agree to disagree and go our separate ways. Let bygones be bygones. Why are you bringing this up again? What's Jessica's deal? Why is she so hard to get along with? Nate has been giving me the cold shoulder lately. He won't return my calls, my emails, or my text. My wife and I just got in an ugly fight. Looks like I'm going to be in the doghouse tonight. Dennis is stuck, replaying his anger over and over again in his head about what his boss said to him months ago. Carrie just can't get over the way her dad treated her mom in her childhood years. Did you hear that Sally recently left the church and isn't talking to anyone? Did you know that Steve and Ryan aren't friends anymore? Did you know that Steve and Ryan won't even talk to one another anymore? Did you know that Rachel hasn't talked to her mom in over 20 years? Did you know that Jill's children have basically have nothing to do with her? Have you ever heard, have you heard that the pastor is resigning because of all the division and turmoil going on in the church? Why is there so much fighting going on? Why don't you just go and talk to that person face to face and make up? How did this division first begin anyways? Why can't we just all get along? I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know where to start. I'm exhausted from all the arguing. I'm exhausted from all the drama. Besides, I don't know if trying to reconcile will even change anything. It might make matters worse for me. But I do know one thing. I just want peace. Friends, here we are. It's Christmas season. We are to be worshiping and celebrating the Prince of Peace who has come into the world. And yet, sometimes... The Christmas holidays can be one of the most divided and non-peaceful time for many people. Uh, Trite holiday cards and cheesy songs on the radio and commercials just don't make you feel better. Because holidays cause us to slow down. And holidays cause us to reflect, both on the good times but it's also one of the hardest times to avoid the pain in so many people's lives. All those different sayings I just gave at the beginning, have you even made those statements yourself lately? Or have you had someone else say those statements or one of them to you lately? Here we are, 2022 is about to end. If you look back over the year, Has 2022 been the year you've been longing and yearning for peace? Peace with God? Peace with others? If you have, you're probably in good company. Uh, Over the last three years or so, uh, this has been probably the most predominant theme I've thought about in my own life. Uh, What is peace? What does peace look like? What does it look like for people who seem not to want it with you? And what does it look like to be the bigger man or bigger woman or the more godly one to take initiation towards pursuing peace? Uh, This has been something for me personally. This has been something for me as a pastor. Uh, This has been something I've helped counsel 
some of you in, in your own time, in being a member of this church? How do you think through peace with others? Well, friends, one of the things we need to do as Christians is state the obvious. We have to acknowledge that all our relationships in our life, unless you have got like some heaven on earth experience that I just haven't touched yet, all of us have some areas of our life where there is no peace between us and another person. It could be the people you work with. It could be people in your family. It could even be someone even in this church. So I think it's just good as Christians for us not to kind of bury our heads in the sand and pretend like everything's all hunky-dory, but let's actually acknowledge that there's pain and a lack of peace in all our lives. So one of the words that's going to come up in this talk is the word conflict. Conflict, pretty simple word, but definitions are important, right? Uh, I'm going to use two different authors to define what conflict is. The first one's more broad, the, the other one's more narrow. This is not on the screen, so you can just listen to this. Ken Sandy has a very broad definition. He says, conflict is a difference of opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. I'll say that again. Conflict is a difference of opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. That just means conflict can be both good and bad, but it just depends on what it is. It's on a case-by-case basis. We're going to flesh that out later on in the talk. On the other hand, Stuart Scott gets more specific and narrow with his definition for conflict, and I think it's one that we often associate with conflict the most, and it's conflict caused by sin or conflict that leads to a sinful effect or a sinful result. Here's what he says. The Latin word from which we get the word conflict means to strike. Conflict is a common military term, which means to fight against. When two people have a conflict, they may have a physical fight and or a verbal fight, but both people are involved and against one another. Conflict, then, is when both parties sin against one another in their communication and or their actions and are then in opposition to one another. Uh, So you can deduce from those definitions, conflict can be defined more broadly as simply a frustration to our desires or goals where somebody opposes them or tries to slow them down or even tries to derail them altogether. But the other definition, as I said earlier, I think is what we typically associate conflict with, and that is sinful conflict. Uh, And we're going to definitely drill into that. But let me just state the obvious up front as well. It's good to have this category in your mind as a Christian because I think sometimes people are raised in households where they think having a robust conversation that's somewhat passionate is a bad thing. Uh, These are the conflict avoidant families. They want to keep peace literally at all costs and never talk about anything of substance. You know, it's the family that says, we don't talk about religion and politics, but we can talk about about everything else. Well, if that's what you're most passionate about, why aren't you talking about it? Well, again, we can, we can use wisdom there, but my main point is there are people that grow up. You might be one of them where you don't talk about things that actually mean something to you because they might cause conflict. But there are good examples of healthy conflict. Not all conflict is bad. I want us to understand that. Not all conflict is bad. 
Let me give you a few examples, and I'm going to go by these a little quicker because I want to get to the heart of this talk. Example number one, we can have our viewpoints on certain doctrines in the Bible tested by someone who knows the Bible better than us. Let me say that again. We can have our viewpoints or beliefs on certain doctrines in the Bible tested, challenged by someone else who knows the Bible better than ourselves. A classic example of this is in Acts 18, verses 24 to 26, where we read about a man named Apollos. He was a mighty preacher of God's word. You would want Apollos in the pulpit. He was a competent man, powerful in the scriptures. And yet, even Apollos still had room to grow in his knowledge of the scriptures. A godly couple, Aquila and Priscilla, one of Paul's co-laborers, they come along Apollos and say, hey, brother, God's using you, but you need to understand the way of God more accurately. Acts 18.26. Personally, for me, when I've dialogued with Jehovah's Witness elders, I don't mean like the novice types, I mean like the top dogs, or I've dealt with Mormon missionaries, or I've even had those who strongly oppose Calvinism. All five points, two points, or caricatures of all of them. Oftentimes, I enjoy those conversations. Not because I want to debate. I could care less about debating. But if someone can challenge me in the Bible to cause me to re-examine what I believe, that's a win for me. Because it's going to sharpen my acts. It's going to make me sharper in my thinking. I'm going to take that as a win in my spiritual growth. I want to welcome that kind of sharpening in my life. I don't want to surround myself with people that's a constant echo chamber for my presuppositions. I want to be around people that can challenge me or ask me questions to help me rethink why do I believe what I believe. That's a healthy form of conflict. Uh, We can also have other strong opinions that we are passionately holding on to about a whole host of things like how Christians should think about American politics, or what level of involvement that Christians should have in civil government. We can have all sorts of preferences and convictions of how we think church should be done, not talking about biblical things, but styles and preferences, ways of raising our families, dating, spending money, how we think about health care, immigration, racism, foster care, homeschooling. Friends, the list just continues to go on and on and on. All I'm trying to say is this. It's healthy and good to have people in your life that love you, that believe the same gospel, that really want what's best for you, but might hold a slightly different position than you because they will ask questions that you're maybe not asking. And it could either A, make you have to rethink your position, or B, improve what you believe and why you believe it. So again, you're welcoming that kind of healthy, robust conflict, if you will. Uh, Another one is different philosophies of ministry. Uh, Sometimes Christians who preach the same gospel, who read the same Bible, just come to different conclusions of how ministry should be done in the kind of Sunday through Friday rhythms. I think of uh, Paul and Barnabas. Uh, They were good friends in the ministry for quite some time, but then in Acts 15, verses 36 to 41, they had a sharp disagreement over John Mark. Should we take John Mark with us on our second and third missionary journey? 
And you can read that further if you like, but they disagreed about it. It was a personnel disagreement. And it says in the text, they separated, parted ways, and they never ministered together in the same way ever again. Uh, We're never told that they sinned against each other. We're never told that they said horrible things about each other. They agreed to disagree, and God used them in different regions in the world. And friends, that is so true even to today. Uh, Christians can be passionate, fully convinced from Scripture on a whole host of things, and be members of different churches in the same town and still love each other. Did you know that? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that God's will and plan for Christians? That we can sincerely disagree and yet sincerely still love each other. Friends, pray that CCBC could be one church that models that well for other churches. Uh, friends, also on the more practical and personal level, friends, we're, we're all gifted so differently, aren't we? Those who have gifts of mercy are going to be different from those who have gifts of teaching. So those who are gifts of mercy, every time they see someone who's hurting or sad or they've gone astray or they're in need, their heart just spills all over the floor and they just want to hold them and love them and how are you okay? And man, we need gifts of mercy. But sometimes people with gifts of mercy don't quote enough Bible. They can be led astray by people who are guilting them with emotions. And then those who were gifts of teaching and preaching. Man, they're just quoting Bible, lifting red. They bleed the Bible. Eh, but sometimes they can be a little too aggressive. They might need to learn how to have some gentleness and mercy as they minister to those who are hurting and in need. Well, that doesn't mean gifts of mercy and gifts of teaching are against each other. That just means they complement one another. That's why we want a church that is made up of a diversity of spiritual gifts, not just one or two. And that goes, too, for personalities. Uh, That goes for life experiences. Uh, You can read 1 Corinthians 12 to learn more about that. Uh, To expand on this point, Ken Sandy says this, Since God has created us as unique individuals, human beings will often have different opinions, convictions, desires, preferences, and priorities. Many of these differences are not inherently right or wrong. They are simply the result of God-given diversity and personal preferences. When handled properly, disagreements in these areas can stimulate productive dialogue, encourage creativity, promote helpful change, and generally make life more interesting. Therefore, although we should seek unity in our relationships, we should not demand uniformity. Instead of avoiding all conflicts or demanding that others always agree with us, we should rejoice in the diversity of God's creation and learn to accept and work with people who simply see things differently than we do. Now, to add to Ken Sandy's remarks here, I also just want to remind us of the reality that, again, born-again Christians who can agree about a bunch of things can still be passionately on different opposing positions on other things and still love each other. So, friends, just continue to pray. That would be so normal here. That our statement of faith and our church covenant is what we're unified around. And then as we keep that as the center all the things that we differ on, we can still have unity together, even amongst the differences and diversity. Now, with all that said, all the healthy, good, you know, cheeky, hugging, smile stuff, it's over. Now we're going to talk about sinful conflict. This is what rips families apart. This is what rips marriages apart. 
This is what destroys and rips churches apart. Friends, this is what many of us have experienced. This is what many people we love have experienced in our own lives. And this type of sinful conflict can be very demonic. This is the type of division that God disapproves of. He hates it. As Christians, we should be very careful to not allow our preferences or strong opinions to cause sinful divisions in his church. Sinclair Ferguson says, to disrupt peace in a church fellowship is to despise both the prayers of Christ and the blessing of Christ. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Or similarly, in Proverbs 6, verse 19, uh, you know that proverb that talks about God hates six things? No, he hates seven. Seven abominations, seven things he detests. You ever paid attention to one of the things that he hates? Proverbs 6.19, a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. Friends, if God takes preserving peace in his church that serious, we should take note of the person or people who are disrupting that peace. Let me say that again. This is where you go from JV church to like varsity church. If God cares that much about his peace in his church, we should take note of the person or people that are disrupting that peace. Thomas Watson once said, If blessed are the peacemakers, then cursed are the peace breakers. If peacemakers are the children of God, then peace breakers are the children of the devil. Heretics destroy the church of the truth of the church by error. And schismatics destroy the peace of it by division. The apostle sets a brand upon such. Mark those which cause divisions and avoid them. Romans 16, 17. But friends, why do sinful conflicts occur? Why is there so much hatred, animosity, backbiting, division, gossip, slander, lying, and discord in the world? Now let's step on all our own toes. Why is there so much sinful conflict? So much lack of forgiveness, so much lack of reconciliation, and so little peacemaking, even among those who call themselves Christians. Well, the reality of it is, ever since the Garden of Eden, man chose to live how he wanted to live over the way God called him to live. When man distrusted God's authority and God's word and God's covering, doing life God's way, well, it led to division. It led to separation. So we have to first understand before there was ever division between a man and a woman or a woman and a woman or a man and a man in friendship or churches, the first division took place between God and us. Friends, get our theology right. The world doesn't talk about that. The heresy of wokeism, the heresy that we equality, to the point of there is no distinction between men and women and God's design for marriage is heresy. The first 
fundamental problem is not we have done wrong to each other. The first and foremost problem with us is that we've sinned against God. That's what's wrong with our world. It's not new legislation. It's not waving flags for the sake of so-called fake unity and equality in the world. We are separated from God. And there can be no real peace between human beings until we are at peace with him. Friends, by nature, we are haters of God and lovers of self. Romans 1.30, 2 Timothy 3.2. We are at enmity with God and his law. Romans 8, verse 7. Friends, if you lack peace with God tonight, you're not going to ever experience true meaningful and lasting peace with anyone else. It might be a cordial peace. It might be a ceasefire peace. But in the grand scheme of eternity, it's a false and fake peace. It's a peace that only passes with the world given enough time. And then on the day of judgment, that false sense of peace will be removed. You'll be called to an account. You see, friends, The Lord we serve is the God of peace. Did you know he's called that in the Bible? The God of peace, the Lord is peace, Judges 6.24. There's plenty of other texts to look at. That means any real and true substantive peace we ever experience in this life is going to come from him. It's not going to come from a husband or a wife or even a church or a pastor. It's going to come from God. He is the only one who can give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. And friends, the bad news is we'll never experience that peace until that bridge or that chasm is brought to a unifying agreement. And friends, the problem is we can't make that reconciliation. Our sins are too heinous. God is too holy and we are not. And the only way that God and man can be reconciled as a perfect man has to stand in the gap to bring a sinful person to a holy God in unity. And that mediator, that savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. He came in the form of a man, truly God, truly man, to reconcile sinners back to God, to bring us to our maker, so that we might have peace with God. Isn't that exactly what we celebrate at Christmas? You know that familiar text, Luke 2, starting in verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The prophet Isaiah foretold that Jesus would be called the prince of peace, Isaiah 9, 6. Or think about John 14, John 16. I want to encourage you during Christmas season, Why don't you read John 13 to 17 all in one reading? Now, if you're like, oh, I'm going to sleep, you know, fall asleep, well, you can take a break. But the upper room discourse from John 13, the institution of the Lord's Supper, all the way to Jesus' high priestly prayer, count how many times Jesus talks about love, unity, and peace. He's literally about to die on a bloody cross. He's about to be betrayed. And this is what he says to his disciples. 
John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give to you, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. John 16, 33, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Friends, when Jesus was resurrected and he appeared to his disciples over a little over a month's time, multiple times he came to them. I mean, one time he's walking through walls. I mean, man, that's going to be pretty cool when we get resurrected bodies. Could we walk through walls? Maybe. Sounds pretty cool. But anyway, the, the point is, the first thing that Jesus says to his scared, unbelieving, fearful disciples is peace. Peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Peace be with you. Friends, if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, did you know you have permanent peace with God? Did you know that? Tonight, right now, and it will never be taken away from you. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified, past tense, by faith, we have peace, present tense, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Every night for the rest of your life, you can bank your soul on this Through Jesus Christ, we have peace with God right now. And this isn't some subjective little fuzzy feeling. This is a removal of the wrath of God. God is never going to punish you. He's never going to threaten you. He's he's never going to treat you like an unregenerate criminal deserving of his judgment in hell. You're one of his now. It's done. The courtroom has already rendered a verdict. You were guilty, now you are innocent. You were dirty, now you are righteous. You were enslaved to sin, now you are forgiven. But why, Pastor Blake, why do I have such glorious things said of me? We have peace with God. Through who? Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 says, now the division between Jew and Gentile have been broken down and that Jew and Gentile who put their faith in Christ have peace with God and peace with one another. But you know that Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, John 17, you know one of the things he promises to pray for his own disciples? It's the same answer to the question of what is Jesus doing right now? He's reigning and ruling over the nations and he's interceding for the saints. Right now, tonight, our great high priest, he does not sleep, he does not slumber, he does not worry, he does not fret, and when we get tired of offering our prayers to him, listen to this, he never gets tired of hearing our prayers. He never gets tired of interceding for us. Thomas Watson once said, Christ not only prayed for peace, but bled for it. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, peace of all kinds, he died not only to make peace with God and man, but between man and man. Christ suffered on the cross that he might cement. That's why I love T. Watt, man. He's just got good images. That he might cement Christians together with his blood as he prayed for peace, so he paid for peace. Christ was himself bound to bring us into the bond of peace. Did you hear that, friends? Christ came to bring peace 
to us with God, but he also came to bring peace between us and other followers of Christ. Which leads to our text tonight, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. If you've got your Bibles, please turn there. It's the beginning of the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, verse 9. If you're opening up one of the chair Bibles, page 472. As you know, this is found on the Sermon on the Mount at the very beginning of Jesus' longest recording, recorded sermon in the Scriptures. Just look at one text with me, Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's hear it again. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Here's your main idea for tonight, and you will be happy because there's a ton of stuff for everyone who are those kind of no-takers, like pull my muscle. You got plenty on the screens tonight. Main idea, God's children will resemble their heavenly father as those who pursue peace, preserve peace, and proclaim the gospel of peace to everyone around us. God's children will resemble their heavenly father as those who pursue peace, preserve peace, and proclaim the gospel of peace to everyone around us. For the remaining time of this talk, I want to answer five questions tonight. Number one, what is a peacemaker? Number two, who are you not at peace with right now? Number three, what are causes for conflict that disrupts peace and unity in relationships? Number four, what are questions to ask when pursuing peace in the midst of conflict? And number five, how can I be a more effective peacemaker? Let's look at that first one. What is a peacemaker? In Matthew 5, 3 to 12, Jesus lays forth a portrait or a picture of what it means to be a Christian. This is not a list of how-tos to become a Christian. These are descriptions. This is a portrait of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a child of God, what it means to inherit the kingdom of God. As John Blanchard once said, it's not a program, but a portrait, not a directive, but a description. It's much like the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. You don't hey, I need to add more peace to my life. I need to to add some more love to my life and kind of walk around going, hey, I think I'm becoming a Christian because I keep adding these things to my life. No, it's called the fruits of the Spirit for a reason. God works in us by his Spirit to produce from us what we can't produce ourselves. And one of those fruits is the fruit of peace. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, what God works in by his grace. Uh, So in Matthew 5, 9, Jesus lays forth not what it takes to become a son or daughter of God. Rather, he describes what characterizes those who truly belong to him. That's why he says there, for they shall be called sons of God. In other words, those who are peacemakers, according to Jesus' definition, they will look something like their heavenly father. Uh, Noah is often said 
that's your little clone, Blake. And he's going to be taller than me, most likely, so I'll be saying, well, yes, quite so, Noah. And recently, someone said that Avery looks a lot like Julie. Well, that shouldn't surprise us, right? We resemble the parents we came from. Well, Jesus says God's children will resemble their heavenly father. Now, look down with me at Matthew 5, 44 to 45. And Jesus expounds on this later about loving our enemies. And he gives the reason why. Look at Matthew 5, 44 and 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Uh, Back to verse 9. In the original language, the word peacemaker here, it's kind of a long word I don't know how to pronounce, is a combination of two words, a noun and a verb. The noun is peace. The verb is to make. In other words, this is someone who pursues or makes peace with whoever God has put in their life. Now, let me qualify that. This is where this verse, if it's ripped out of context, can be implied in some really erroneous ways. Jesus is not saying that simply a peaceable or peaceful person is a peacemaker. Did you catch that? He didn't say, blessed are the peaceable or blessed are the peaceful. No, 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 no. It's a noun and a verb. Blessed are the peacemaker. Very different. A child who is asleep could be described as peaceful. Someone who is indifferent and apathetic to the world around them could be described as peace out, man. Peaceful. Someone who even has a pacifist view towards gun control and war, simply avoiding conflict, doesn't necessarily make you a peacemaker. One's passive, but a peacemaker is active. One avoids conflict, but this talks about making peace, not necessarily avoiding conflict. There's a big difference there. The emphasis Jesus is using is not on having a laid-back personality or someone who's soft-spoken or merely non-confrontational. No, this is a peacemaker. This is someone who's proactive. That means their life is characterized by taking steps of pursuing peace, protecting peace, proclaiming peace, and prioritizing God's peace among others. So, for example, in evangelism, Jackson, did you share the gospel with someone this past week? He's usually got a story for you. He's a wonderful example of a faithful evangelist in our church. When you share the gospel at work, Jackson, whether it's in the van or while you're like freezing cold, fixing some pipes, you are being given a ministry of reconciliation. That's what evangelism is. It's a ministry of reconciliation. We are given, the church, the great privilege to preach the gospel of peace so that we can see sinners reconciled to God. So one of the ways that God's people are peacemakers is that we bring the good news of peace to sinners who right now are separated from God. So that's one application. If you share the gospel, that's one aspect of being a peacemaker. People are under the wrath of God, and they need the true peace of God. 2 Corinthians 5 calls that, verses 18 to 21, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 to 21, the ministry 
of reconciliation. Uh, Paul even says in the church, Ephesians 4.3, we are to preserve or protect the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So what is peacemaking? Here's a good definition. I'm not sure if this is on the screen, though. Peacemaking is the work of reconciling two alienated parties, of taking two enemies and bringing them into a relationship of unity and harmony. Peacemaking is taking steps, listen, not away from people, but to them. Did you know in the Bible when God turns his back on a people, it's judgment? When he turns his face away, it's a sign of his displeasure. And that's why this, the Numbers, Numbers chapter 6, the Nazarite vow, may God bless you, make his face shine upon you. That's talking about God's favor. Friends, when we turn our backs towards other people, we are literally showing by our body language we're not peacemaking. But when we turn towards them and we move towards them in love, that's what a peacemaker's disposition is. They move towards people. They don't run the other direction. Again, this could be even considered for someone who sees people who are divided. If you want to know how, what a peacemaker is, evangelism, pursuing others, moving towards them. Watch this, being used of God to bring people who are opposed to each other together. A counselor, or sometimes we call a mediator. They come between two parties to bring them to some form of peace. Question number two, who are you not at peace with right now? Who are you not at peace with right now? This is the most personal aspect of this talk. Now, you can look on the screen here. If you're like, Blake, I can't write that down, screenshot it and pass it out to all your friends, or I can send you the notes later. This is a hard examination time. As you hear these questions, begin to jot down on paper or however you want to think through it what people's names come to your mind tonight. What people's names come to your mind tonight. Is there someone you just don't like? Is there someone whose hand you refuse to shake? When you see this person, do you tend to duck your head, look the other way, or pretend you didn't see them? When this person is praised or treated with respect, do you get jealous and angry towards them? When you think of this person... Do you find yourself stewing in your thoughts in ways you want to prove them wrong and vindicate yourself as right? Is there someone who leaves you with a bad taste in your mouth or a sick feeling in your stomach when you think of them or see them? Do you know someone who really irritates you or who consistently makes you feel outright angry? You're invited to a party and excited to go until you realize that this person has been invited. Suddenly, everything changes. Is there a person who regularly triggers your criticism? Is there a person in your life that you're waiting on them to pursue you for peace rather than you pursue them to make peace? Is there a person in your life right now that you just refuse to forgive? And friends, if no one is coming to your mind tonight, ask the Lord who he knows you're not at peace with right now. 
Ask the Lord, using these questions, using Scripture, to bring to your mind who he knows you're not at peace with tonight. Number three, what are causes for sinful conflict that disrupts peace and relationships? Turn in your Bibles to James 3. James chapter 3. Just turn over to the right. We'll return back to Matthew 5. James 3. I want you to look with me in James 3, starting in verse 13 through James 4, verse 1. Hear this afresh. James 3, starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Uh, Friends, just really quick to summarize that whole section. You will not win the war in relationships if you don't first win the war right here in your heart. You will not win the war in bringing peace and unity to real flesh and blood relationships until you and I first deal with the passions of our heart. Now, what are those passions? Well, James tells us it's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. That's what he says. That's the root cause of sinful conflict and sinful division in a plethora of relationships. This can happen with family and friends. It could even happen in the church. Let me add a few more things to add to this. I have seen this in my own life. I've seen this in many others. What are other reasons, other ways sinful division occurs in relationships? Number one, unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. Maybe you had this ideal thought in your mind. What a father-son relationship, mother-daughter relationship, friend-to-friend, pastor-to-member. And when those expectations did not get met, you either got angry at the person or you just avoided them and cut them off. You didn't give me what I wanted. You didn't live up to my expectations. Now, friends, let me say this. If you make promises to someone to do something or to be something, and you don't live up to those promises, well, then you need to take your side of the responsibility. We need to be a men and women of our word to say, hey, I did promise you this, and I bombed it. I did tell you I would keep you accountable, and I didn't. I told you I'd be there for you, and I wasn't. We do need to be honest if we feel like we haven't lived up to what we said we would do. But friends, if those expectations were just one-sided and they were just imagined in someone's mind, they were never agreed upon by two parties or more, friends, we're putting expectations on people that they didn't even know they were called to live up to. 
even in church life, it's not uncommon for divisions to occur when people make preferences, their personal preferences, on the same playing field as God's word. And guess what happens? When those preferences aren't met, they either stir up trouble in the church or they leave. I didn't get what I wanted. The church didn't meet my needs. The pastor wasn't my close friend like I thought he would be. Jared Wilson once said this, if your commitment to church is contingent on all your preferences, it's not God you go there to worship, but yourself. A second reason for breakdown in relationships, which leads to sinful conflict, is poor communication. Poor communication. So similar to my previous point, we can get ourselves in trouble when we are poor communicators. Probably the most common deficiency I've seen in much of our breakdown in relationships at home, the workplace, friendships, and in the church is centered around this. Poor communication. Why is that, though? Why is it that people who say they love each other can be poor communicators with one another, misunderstand one another, speak past one another, I think it's multifaceted. Subpoint number one, we probably don't spend enough quality time together face to face. We probably don't spend enough quality time together face to face. So I am a big proponent and advocate of modern technology. I need to get a new phone on Monday. I'm hoping to get one that's improved because this thing is awful. Technology is great, but technology is a tool. Did you hear that? It's a tool. It's not a real human. It's not someone that you can be married to. That's kind of weird. Our world is kind of going in that direction. But smartphones, email, Zoom chat, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, those things can be wonderful tools. But listen, they cannot replace real face-to-face interaction with real human beings. I'm saying this, I hope it's landing. Think about the people right now in your mind that you're at conflict with. How much time have you spent face-to-face, uninterrupted, quality, meaningful conversation with just in the last three to six months? Now think through all the conflict you've had. How much of that conflict has been through technology? A text message wrongly understood. An email not replied to at just the right time. You didn't send me an emoji. You're against me. What did they mean by that emoji? People can receive and send things that they did not intend and it create war. When in reality, if we just put the phone down, go have a real human face-to-face discussion, ask me the question you want to ask. Put your arm around me. I want to hear your voice. I want to see the body language. I want to see your countenance. Friends, it can solve a lot of problems. It can solve a lot of drama. It can solve a lot of mess if we just get in front of each other. I love 2 John 12. 2 John 12. This is just one of those neat verses in the Bible that I'm like, thank you, John. Though I have much to write to you. Okay, so they didn't have Twitter and TikTok back then, so 
I have much to type to you, 140 characters. I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. Charles Spurgeon once said this about hate, I'm sorry, hate, Satan hates Christians spending time together. You know that, right? He hates it. If God says unity is preserved when we get together, that means he, Satan's going to hate it. And he loves it when Christians are separated. Notice what old Spurgeon said. Quote, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. He attaches far more importance to godly relationships than we do. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. I think the second main issue with poor communication that causes so much breakdown in our relationships is making false assumptions about one another. Making false assumptions about one another. One sister has put it really well. Listen to this. A lot of hurt feelings are built upon false assumptions. A lot of hurt feelings are built on false assumptions. My personal way of attacking that common temptation that I can deal with too in my own life, and I do this with my staff, so Jansen and Graham, I do this with the elders. If you know me well enough in this church, you know I do it with you. Do not assume, ask. You don't need to schedule some formalized, intense, stressful meeting with me to ask me a question. My heart rate and blood pressure goes up when you do that. (laughs) Throw a bone to the pastor. I have enough intensity in my life. Just stop me right there at the hallway. Hey, brother, I noticed you said this last Sunday. What did you mean by that? I'll tell you. Or, hey, I'm not sure that application was all that clear to the text. What do you think about that, Pastor Blake? Yeah, I think you're right. Thanks for pointing that out. All right, move on. Just ask. Why do we sing songs from the sixth century? Why can't we sing Chris Tomlin's greatest hits? Ask me. You don't need to go through some secretary or the, you know, military defense of CCBC to get me. Friends, I want to model that for you so that you model that for each other. Don't make false assumptions. Why wasn't this person up for membership? Why did this person not get put up for excommunication? Why are we doing this? Why are we, just ask. Don't go home and build a castle of false assumptions when it could have been dealt with that fast. Here's some good questions to ask each other and with those who maybe you feel a little tension with. Can you clarify for me what you meant when you said? I've heard you give your position on fill in the blank. Can you help me understand how you got to that conclusion? You see that? There's no assumptions being made. I honestly want to hear. I want to learn. I've noticed lately we don't talk or hang out like we used to. Is everything okay between us? Did I do anything to offend you? I like direct stuff like that. I mean, sometimes it's kind of weird and awkward, and sometimes people do it at the wrong time. Like I'm having a meaningful conversation, and they, boop, break it. By the way, let me just, side mark, it has nothing to do with peacemaking. Let's continue growing. If you see two people having an adult conversation, don't crash the party. There we go, sidebar over. I don't think enough pastors say that, but they're always thinking it. 
Members of CCBC pray that we cultivate a culture of not assuming, but asking questions to gain clarity. False assumptions only create divisions. Gaining clarity creates and preserves peace. Number four, what are questions to ask when pursuing peace in the midst of conflict? Uh, These are good questions to ask if you're in the middle of it right now or you might be in it in the future or you're counseling someone who's in the middle of it. Uh, You can, again, write these down, take a snapshot. I can send it to you in email. Use this as a prayer guide. Use these as ways to prompt your thinking when you're really struggling whether or not you have peace with someone or not. Number one, is what I'm saying about this person accurate and true? Is there anything I'm I'm going to say about this person or to this person that other reliable people would disagree with? In other words, you're just getting your facts correct before you draw premature conclusions. That's another thing Christians are notorious for not being good at. Gather your evidence. Do your research. Get your facts before you draw conclusions. Number two, how will this message be received? Whether it's a correction, critique, question, consider meditating on Jesus' golden rule from Matthew 7, 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Number three, is this the best time for this conversation? Should more time be given for prayer and reflection? Or would pushing this conversation off too long only harden hearts and open the door for the devil to work more damage? Number four, am I the best person to engage in this conversation? Is this a conversation for someone closer to the situation, closer to this person, or in higher authority over me to have? Number five, are there more facts I need to be aware of before entering in this conversation? Proverbs 18.13 says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Number six, are you in a good emotional and spiritual state to have this conversation? Will I be able to speak with self-control and clear thoughts? Or will I say things in a weak moment that I could regret later? Number seven, is this other person in a good and stable place to have this conversation? Are they in an erratic emotional state? Do they have spiritual ears to hear? Are they so entrenched in sin that apart from an act of God, they don't want to hear from your concerns at all? One author aptly said this, quote, when we refuse to listen to God, we grow deaf to anyone who tries to speak the truth to us. And number eight, If I take time to carefully examine my own heart, am I the real problem in the situation? Is my heart what most needs to be changed and not the situation or the person I have a current problem with? Jesus said in Matthew 7, 3 to 5, to first remove the log from my own eye before I try to take the speck out of my brother's eye. Have I truly and humbly done that? Whose sin bothers you the most, yours or the other person's? Lastly, number five, how can I be a more effective peacemaker? If you have your worship guide with you, turn to page five. See this cool little graph here? This is not original to me or Jansen. It's from Ken Sandy's classic book from the 90s, The Peacemaker. On the chart, it lays out a spectrum for common, from really bad to really good ways people tend to respond to conflict. So if you take your little slope here to the far left, over here, we have the escape responses to conflict. And on the right side, we have the attack responses. And then in the center, we find the peacemaking responses. If you'd like to read the whole chapter that expounds on all these, 
I can send that entire chapter to you on a PDF. Just email me, text me, and I will send it over to you. But to summarize it, what are some sinful ways we tend to avoid conflict? These are not on the screen. This is more this afternoon's uh, on my sleepy as I'll get out preparation. What are two sinful ways we tend to avoid conflict? Now listen to that language. What are sinful ways we try to avoid conflict? First, just keeping quiet when you should speak up. Keeping quiet when you should speak up. This could fall in the category of sinful silence. Sinful silence. We certainly need to avoid being quarrelsome or someone who is known as being loud or argumentative. And there are times where we should restrain our lips, especially if the other person doesn't even want to hear what you have to say. The Bible says in Proverbs 14, I think it's verse 7, leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet the words of knowledge, or something like that. But being quiet when you should speak up could be a sign we're a coward. We fear men. Men and women are big and God is really small. And friends, sometimes silence could even show we're complicit. We give approval to what was said and done. Romans 132 speaks of that. Second sinful ways to avoid conflict is you're in denial. You're in denial. You act as if it never happened. You've got this cheesy smile on your face when everyone and everything around you is going, how could you be smiling at that? Did you not see that? Did you not hear that? Does that not affect you? You try to quickly change the subject every time it's brought up because you feel uneasy. You don't want to face the elephant in the room. You like the elephant just sitting over there in the corner every time we get together for Christmas. Every time we go visit the kids, every time we get together for a wedding, or every time we run into each other at Panera Bread or whatever restaurant, we're just going to act like it never happened. Friends, that's denial. And that is not what a peacemaker is like. What are some sinful ways to resolve conflict? So those are sinful ways to avoid. What about sinful ways to try to resolve it? I'll mention again two. First, letting too much time pass. Letting too much time pass. Letting too much time pass without ever addressing the problem and actually dealing with it. Paul said in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Uh, we have a few physicians in the room. Dentist for life. If you don't deal with cancer, you don't deal with any type of infectious disease, it'll spread. And the same way goes with dealing with conflict. Too much time can actually harden the heart and Satan can do some demolition work in a lot of relationships. The second one is this, waiting for the other person to initiate the resolution or reconciling process. 
waiting for the other person to initiate the resolution or reconciling process. Now, there are going to be situations where it would be dangerous for you to do that, and you should not do it. I can come up with all sorts of scenarios right now. Putting yourself in harm's way is not what we're talking about. Dealing with a volatile, abusive, drunk, drug addict, threatening, that's not what we're talking about. No. Distance could prevent ever initiating with this person. This person could block you in their phone, their emails. They could literally say, you're dead to me. I never want to talk to you ever again. Well, you, you can't reconcile with someone who literally cuts you off indefinitely. But aside from those extreme exceptions, waiting for the other person to initiate could lead that there's a real chance they never will. And your heart is only going to grow more bitter over time. Friends, did you know that bitterness and a lack of forgiveness can eat at someone way worse than the person who actually committed the offense? Did you know that? You live with a victim mentality, and the enemy uses that. He leaves us in shackles. That's why it's dangerous to wait till the other person initiate. Friends, Scripture says a lot more about that. Friends, if we're a Christian, you are, I am, a peacemaker. It's not a matter of if, you are. You are a son or daughter of God. The question is, is how faithful are we at it? How fruitful are we? How effective are we? Friends, I want you to listen to these texts. I know it's late. I hope this message is re-listened to and thought about for years from now. So thank you for your come all ye faithful two times today. Listen to these texts. These texts, what I'm about to read, is what led me to preach this message tonight. Your pastor is not off the hook on obeying what you're about to hear. God's dealt with me in the ring. God's dealt with me in my bitterness, in my anger, in all the ways that I've bombed seeking conflict in my own life. So hear these texts that God has been using in my life for the last three years to lead me to a much happier and peaceful place. Matthew 5. 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Did you hear that? Go and first be reconciled. Go and first be reconciled. Matthew 6, 12 to 15. Forgive us of our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive, forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. Matthew 18, 15, and 16. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between, him, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And then Mark 11. I was preaching through this a few weeks ago. Mark eleven twenty five, And whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your 
Father who is also in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. You can also write these down just for the sake of time. Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. Luke 17, 3 and 4. Colossians 3, 12 to 15. Colossians 3, 12 to 15. Romans 12, 17 to 21. Romans 12, 17 to 21. Hebrews 12, verse 14. Hebrews 12, verse 14. Ephesians 4, verse 32. Ephesians 4, verse 32. So you might be here tonight, and you're struggling to forgive someone. It's been eaten at you for days, weeks, months, maybe even years. And you're wondering, should I initiate the first step with fill in the blank of the name towards seeking out biblical repentance, reconciliation, and forgiveness of sin? Here's your answer. You and I, first and foremost, should want to please the Lord in all our relationships. That comes before what the other person thinks of us. We want to please God. We want to obey first and go. First, forgive. Go tell your brother. These are all examples of striving for peace. Question, am I called to forgive someone who doesn't repent or acknowledge their sin? Answer, If they repent, we are called to absolutely forgive them of their sin. Luke 17, 3 and 4. If the person does not repent and ask for forgiveness, then we are responsible to begin asking God for a supernatural grace in our hearts to be ready and willing to forgive at any given moment. So I'm going to illustrate it. There's two different types of forgiveness. There's transacted forgiveness and attitudinal forgiveness. So one's dealing with the relationship, the other is a matter of the heart. Transacted forgiveness, it's done and dealt with. Apologies have been made, forgiveness has been offered, you're no longer holding that sin against them, you're no longer yeah, bringing up any of this stuff ever again. It's just done and dealt with. Attitudinal forgiveness is even if the other person does not repent or ask for forgiveness, then we are called to release that bitterness from our hearts. So how do you do that? Imagine inviting someone to your house for Christmas for 10 years. 10 years out of 10 years, they never come. You've got this gift you've had under the tree for 10 years with their name on it, and they never come. You know what attitudinal forgiveness is? I'm going to keep this gift under the tree with their name on it. But in the day they come through those doors, I'm going to give this gift to them. Friends, when others don't want to reconcile or repent or acknowledge their wrongs, the relationship can't be restored because they haven't repented. But we're still called from the heart to release the bitterness and be willing and able to forgive at any given moment they do repent. 
Friends, how do you do that? Number one, a part of the process is grieving with anger. A part of the process is not being in denial. It's prayer, it's getting help, searching the scriptures. But one of the ways that we release the bitterness, listen, is that we resign from being the judge. God is judge. You're bitter, I'm bitter, because I'm sitting in the throne of judgment. When we get off the throne of judgment, God, you will either judge them in hell forever if they never repent, or you've already forgiven them at the cross of Calvary. The father can discipline his children. The judge can sentence the culprits to hell. That's not our responsibility. We're bitter because we're playing judge. We're bitter because we believe justice hasn't been satisfied by our terms. When you release it, we get out the way. And God begins healing, and the gift starts getting wrapped. And when they come through that door, forgiveness will be extended as God has forgiven us. Jay Adams once said, there are three sides to every relationship. What another does, what you do, and what God does. Remember then, you are not in this relationship alone. Friends, we're not going to conclude with a song tonight due to time. But I want to land the plane with these words of hope. Forgiven sinners will be transformed into forgiving sinners. It's a part of our sanctification. If you think I could never forgive that person or that church or those people, you've underestimated the love and mercy of God. He can make the vilest clean. He can take the most bitter and angry and resentful person and make them a peacemaker in his hand. If God has shown us mercy, he can enable us to show mercy. Peacemaking, friends, is not optional. Peacemaking reveals who belongs to Jesus and who doesn't. Peacemaking reveals who has peace with God and who doesn't. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Friends, before Stephen, the first Christian ever recorded in the Bible to be martyred for his faith in Jesus, do you know what his last words were? Acts 7, verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. On the cross, some of the most precious words Jesus uttered at the cross, he said this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Peacemakers fight with two different types of weapons. Julie just had a mild panic. Peacemakers have a rugged love about them. What is rugged love? Love is rugged when it's strong enough to face evil. Tenacious enough to do good. 
courageous enough to enforce consequences, sturdy enough to be patient, resilient enough to forgive, trusting enough to pray boldly. Friends, one of the ways that we model peacemaking is that we fight the battles Jesus wants us to fight. We have the sword of the Spirit, which is the what? Word of God. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We wrestle against a spiritual enemy. And we use the Word of God to contend for the faith. Fight for truth. Fight for Christ's church. Fight to protect the unity. Christ died for it. It's worth it. But when it comes to relationships... You know how healing takes place? You put the sword down and you start washing feet and you start cleaning off dirty, unworthy feet of people who have wounded and sinned against you and sinned against me. Jesus did that on the night of his betrayal. He washed 12 men's feet. One of them was a devil 11 of them denied him, and he did it anyway. He was showing them a picture of what he was about to accomplish at the cross. Friends, we need to know what battles we should fight. Pull out the sword and contend. But there's also relationships that will only be mended if we take the initiative and we pursue peace with them, with the peace of God in our hearts. Friends, if you've got peace with God tonight, we can pursue peace with one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would use tonight as we've meditated on this one beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Lord, whatever healing needs to take place, whatever repentance needs to take place, whatever heart examination questions we need to wrestle with and be confronted with, we pray that even starting tonight, CCBC would be a reconciling church. It would start from the top down with the elders spilling on down to the deacons and to the members. And Lord, we pray that CCBC could be a church for healing, a church that grows and is used of you to help bring peace in the river valley. And Lord, we pray that even tonight, Lord, those who are not with us, that they too would be committed to that same mission, that ministry of reconciliation between you and sinners and between your people and the church. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.